So what do we think? What is the federal government going to do with cryptocurrency? You would think that they're not just going to let it exist. And by they, I mean not even necessarily one political party or the other. There's already authority under the law that different agencies can create their own rules about things without any action from the Congress. And so there's a couple different things, right? There's one, what is Congress going to do? And that's really a political question. Um, Or at least it starts a political question, and if it doesn't have any political ramifications, then um, stuff will just happen. One example of this is like the new patent law that came out, you know, 10 years ago or so. Probably many of you don't even realize there was a new patent law that was launched, the Lanham Act. And it was an update, changed the whole patent system. Like a really, really big change. But it wasn't a political issue. There wasn't a position that Democrats took that was in opposition to what position Republicans took on intellectual property, and at least the differences weren't large, they weren't loud, and it was fairly quiet in terms of passing this landmark, landscape-changing law, and, you know, it probably came up with new cycles if it was really slow week. Um, this would have been, you know, basically the end of Bush's second term or the beginning of Obama's term, right? And there's a lot of great recession going on, the housing market, all of that, uh, the Iraq war, surge, fighting ISIS. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on in the news, you know, from, you know, 06 to 2010 in that period where you would have heard the most about this new patent law, you wouldn't hear anything about it. Um, because it wasn't contentious, it wasn't newsworthy, because nobody wanted to fight about it, right? You could end up with a similar thing on cryptocurrency. Now, what I will say is that there are some very interesting differences of opinion, though. So, one analogy could really be the... Uh, the internet piece and net neutrality. That's a really weird way to phrase what they're talking about. But basically what they're talking about is bandwidth of the internet. And can internet service providers control who gets the most bandwidth? Think of it this way. The internet really is an information highway. That's all it is. So just imagine a highway. And what net neutrality tries to do is say, hey, whoever's building these roads and whoever's maintaining these roads, everybody gets to use all the lanes at the same speed, right? There's not special speed limits for buses. There's not special speed limits for commercial trucks or for UPS delivering around town. There's not special speeds for semis or sports cars or motorcycles. Everyone uses the same roads and has the same speed limit. What net neutrality, or you know, the opponents of it, to the extent we want to call them opponents, they see 
internet and that information highway as a resource to be allocated. And one way that you allocate resources efficiently is you use supply and demand. And part of supply and demand, right, is scarcity and then the willingness to pay. And the idea there would be you get to an efficient price point in services by saying, okay, if you're a business who uses a lot of bandwidth, then we're going to reserve some of that bandwidth for you. So think of a highway where the left two lanes are only for semis or for commercial vehicles hauling goods and transportation and things like that. And they get to go a lot faster than everyone else. The other two lanes are for your private passenger cars, your bicycles, your motorcycles, people commuting around town. They get to use the first two lanes, but they can only drive 40 miles an hour and not 80 miles an hour, right? That's sort of the point. Now, the analogy fails there, or stops there, because there's no efficiency to be gained in a real road or a real highway by how fast or slow someone drives. But speed and bandwidth are different with the internet than they are on a highway in terms of this number of lanes and how fast you can go. So, in some cases, bandwidth and speed are directly related. Like, the more bandwidth you're using, the slower the whole thing goes. Right? So that makes the difference where if you have two lanes reserved for commercials and they're going 100 miles an hour, maybe you only have a total of 150 miles an hour that you can ever push information through at. And so if the commercial vehicle get to drive 100 miles an hour, the private vehicles only get to drive 50 miles an hour because that's all that's left. That's kind of where that analogy breaks down. But from a visualization, from able to visualize what we're talking about, you know, it's reserving lanes and speed for specific people based on essentially how much they pay every month. So a toll road is somewhat analogous, especially if you think of a place like Miami or someplace where you have certain lanes that are toll lanes. And you can get on there, they're single lanes, you go faster, there's no on and off, people aren't moving in and out, right? So they should be faster lanes, and you got to pay to use them to get charged, right, on your automated toll things or whatever. That's kind of another pseudo-analogy. And the whole point, right, is that there's this, for some reason, partisan divide between net neutrality. Now, I don't quite understand why businesses pro or anti-net neutrality, because I've yet to see really a practical situation where a business is limited by its bandwidth and its speed, you know, perhaps in certain situations where you're running a cloud data center or something, where your entire business model is based on data and transferring data, that might be an example, but for your everyday people, and your everyday businesses, you're just not using that much bandwidth. In fact, you know, even a place like Target and their online shopping probably uses less bandwidth than just a few number of people who are streaming movies all the time, right? So then you have 
the streaming, and that takes up a lot of bandwidth and a lot of speed. And so, it's kind of a weird, it's a weird situation because it's all about suspicion. And the being, or I guess the lack of trust. Right? Because it makes sense from a technology standpoint to identify certain lanes of bandwidth and dedicate those to streaming. And it probably would allow for some developments in things like multiplexing, which if you could actually identify packets of information that are streaming versus streaming like video versus packets of information that's just like, you know, um, a different kind of data. Numbers. Well, I mean, it's all kind of numbers, but the difference between video encoded data, which is fundamentally different than text or text messaging, right, or Facebook messaging, or um, even sending videos on Instagram, because streaming has a little bit different protocol than the way it works. Um, right? So there are some technology options that might be able to benefit everyone, or at least benefit efficiency, if they could be enacted, but net neutrality would prohibit things like that from being enacted. The converse is, net neutrality is a good idea because when you start to allow people to essentially prioritize different types of traffic, now you have a discretion. Someone has discretion about which internet traffic gets the most bandwidth, which can move the fastest, and that begins to pose risk. The risk is that, you know, I mean, you can imagine these governments, right? That's a, that's a First Amendment free speech nightmare. The government has the ability to restrict certain types of bandwidth based on content or whatever it is, right? Like, government, you can imagine pretty easily that some state government uh, would restrict information on abortion, right? All these websites that have information about abortion or Planned Parenthood or these clinics, right? They could restrict the bandwidth to those people so those sites would be ridiculously slow, right? And then you could give more bandwidth to alternative, like, pro-life solutions about adoption. So if somebody were to search, right, and they're trying to open these web pages about this information, some of that information would open an instantly in front of your face, right, and then you get a recency bias and an access bias. Some of that information would never show up or show up very slowly. And so, you know, the convenience factor is you'd be able to manipulate people and condition people based on how easy that information is to access. But that's just one example, right? Now that's distrust in state government. Same is same distrust would go to private companies. I mean Facebook, yeah, right? Or any of these companies in, that own social media that are involved in like policing their content. You know, and I'm gonna do a whole podcast on content pollution. Don't you worry, that that's kind of goes into that whole concept, and so does cryptocurrency. So, you know, to kind of move this along and get off this net neutrality thing, it's about trust. That trust isn't there that a company won't prioritize its own data for 
try to restrict some other competitors data, juicing competitors in the marketplace would be anti-capitalistic. And therefore, the net judge laws prevent that to happen by not allowing any kind of dividing up of examples based on certain conditions. And so it's one of those things that's kind of partisan in that there's different viewpoints. Um, it's kind of hard to parse the different viewpoints out because they, they don't really necessarily align where you traditionally think about the political parties and their conflicts. So clearly the Republicans we know would be considered to be pro-business. I don't see how that many businesses literally benefit from a profit standpoint from getting rid of net neutrality um, other than the very limited sector of businesses that their profitability is somehow a function of their bandwidth and internet speed to provide different kinds of data. Same can be said, what's the problem if businesses that have faster bandwidth than consumers because they already do? You know, most businesses who need bandwidth, they're paying for the high-end programs from their, their internet service providers, right? They're doing unlimited data at whatever megabit per second. And most average consumers aren't buying those plans. And so there's already sort of a resource allocation going on just based on that. And so, um, and, and it's kind of meaningless in some cases, right? Like, if you, you know, just take somebody's grandparents, the most that they might do is stream a little bit of family videos from Facebook or YouTube or Instagram or something like that. They're not going to use two terabytes of data every month. They're definitely not going to use two terabytes of data at 150 megabits per second standard. So they would literally notice no degradation in the performance of their internet access, even if they were bottlenecked or restricted compared to some business. Um, now, I'm not a net neutrality expert. I don't know exactly what all the laws say. They're very well subtle restrictions in there, or some subtle type restrictions that people or internet service providers were doing prior to net neutrality being enacted. Um, though I still speculate that a lot of it was paranoia and interest group driven, the interest group driven at the federal level during the Obama administration caused it, and I would probably say the same thing for, you know, whoever drove the opposition to it and got it changed in the Trump administration was likely another interest group that somehow, you know, was able to win that battle at the time, and that's the problem with these kinds of things, like neutrality, like cryptocurrency, like a patent scheme or copyright scheme. They're not political items in that politicians are going to lose or gain a bunch of votes because of them, because the average man just don't even know this is going on or even understand how they can act. And they definitely don't have any which allows special interests then to sort of dive in, you know, 
donate that money to the right committees and whatnot, and you know, get their way, so to speak. And that's probably where we are with cryptocurrency. Enough people don't know what to do about it, or what to think about it, or maybe they'll never even get involved with it at this point. So there's not a lot of political risk, or even a little a lot of political value to be gained or lost by taking a position on cryptocurrency. And so it's likely to be driven by special interests again. And what we've kind of seen that play out, what you've seen, you've seen recently some prominent economic figures in this country start to get involved in cryptocurrency. Some of them do it with very public stands, very public Phrases and statements. Some institutions, you know, like a Bank of America or something like that, you know, they start to buy these assets um, as value holders because they're likely to go up even more if they gain acceptance, and especially if they make it through this period of notoriety without getting any government clamps put on them. Then their value is going to explode even more because there's going to be people out there who are skeptical about getting into something new. Then they think the government is going to come in get their hands on it, restrict it, and that restriction begins to drive its value down, and the restricted nature of it and the value going down further drives the overall potential of it down, and then you see you know, a bubble pop, and the value plummets, and no one goes back into investment because it's gone, so it really messes with the value trick. But my comment about having these people like Elon Musk and Mark Cuban and all these institutions buying it, coming out of it, like Bitcoin, even Dogecoin, they're almost getting ahead of the government, right? They're almost beginning to contemporary, or contemporize, that's not even a word, but it ought to be. You know, they're trying to normalize cryptocurrency in the modern economic system. So these sort of old school or these old system people will have a much harder time eradicating. Like they're trying to infect the financial system with cryptocurrency and normalize that existence of it. So the federal government has more and more and more resistance every day if they try to do something like they try to ban it, or they try to tax it in a certain way, or they try to do all these things. And the more people that have it, the more people that accept it, the more the perception of it being valuable in its form as it exists today, the more political risk to generate for people, um, candidates, Congress, all of these people to touch it. So it starts to get insulated a little bit, which is how the existing financial system stays the same for so long. You don't bite the hand that feeds you, and a lot of people want to say, right, financial systems are broken. That's not entirely true, right? Because they, they work. And they benefit certain people, and they kind of benefit everyone, as I talked about at the beginning. But that benefit is exponentially modified by your disposable income. And again, and it's no different from cryptocurrency. So, or anything, right? Anything that you do, any opportunity in life, is limited by your discretionary income or your discretionary value that you have. And if you have $100,000 in cash in your bank account, you have a lot more opportunity to do things than someone who has $10,000 or $0 in their bank account, right? That's life, right? 
that doesn't mean that's not to change right financial systems, feudalism, communism, all of these things. Like if you find a way to have value of some sort of currency in your hand that's more than what somebody else has, now you have the ability to exploit opportunities more than that. It's just the very nature of the world, right? Um, a lion with a whole herd of gazelle to choose from has a lot more opportunity to exploit than a lion who's got one gazelle to choose from. Um, it's just, it's just math. It's just nature. So it'll be interesting to see how political opinions, you know, come down on that. And I'm not trying to get to any kind of conclusion. It's a thought experiment. I'm just, uh, a discussion or a spurring of a discussion or a way to think about think about it. What do we know about politics? What do we know about the Democratic and Republican parties? What do we know about the federal financial system and the regulatory system? What do we know about businesses? What do we know about individuals? Can we predict based on our understanding of all of that what's going to happen? Because if we can then our understanding is correct, right? If we predict what's going to happen, if we have a pretty good understanding of everyone's role, everyone's perspective, and everyone's interest in this topic. And if we're completely wrong, then we're missing something, right? If our predictions are wrong, there's a piece of understanding that we don't have, or a piece of our understanding that's incorrect, right? Our understanding of one political party or the other, their priorities, That's what this is about. That's what the discussion and largely this whole podcast series is about that thought process. We are in a divided political environment. And what that means is there is political pressure out there in a way that it hasn't really been. At least, you know, maybe in the last four or five decades. You know, we just have a number of things that have come to a head in all aspects of life that have created this political divide and this sort of emotional emotional involvement in the political picture. And the better we can understand it, the better we can predict it. And these benign topics like cryptocurrency, like patent law, right, like net neutrality, honestly, where we don't have people don't have grassroots strong political opinions that they have emotional attachment to on these things. Right. If we can predict the way things are going to play out, we know that our understanding of where we're at is correct. And if they go off in left field, something else is going on. Something else is going on that we don't know about, and we have to readjust our understanding, readjust our perspective of what we believe and the things we know. And so, that's where we are. I think it's obvious that at some point, some type of regulation is going to emerge on cryptocurrencies and you know what those are you can speculate all day like are they going to be disclosed like you're not going to be allowed to have secret cryptocurrency and when I say not allowed I'm going to say you know it will become a crime to own cryptocurrency that you don't declare to the government right that's a problem that would be a problem for a lot of people based on their political affiliation because government control and it begins to destroy the value of cryptocurrency in the first place. Now some blockchains, like I said, they have value 
beyond being a cryptocurrency, beyond being an anonymity, um, the very function of the blockchain for some of these uh, assets has value in and of itself. But as a cryptocurrency, as an asset that can be bought, sold, traded, mined, generated, more restrictions, more the government can say anything about it, make any requirements about it, the value is going to go down. Because some of the value is indeed in the fact that the government can't trace it, can't regulate it. Very much freedom. Think about freedom, not financial freedom. That's why it's interesting. And that's why where the political parties fall on their opinions on this, you know, over the next couple of years, it's going to be very interesting.